I invite you to open your Bibles. Hope you brought a Bible. To 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. If you're newer to the Bible, some of us are, it's go to the Gospels, go back a few more books, and you will come to two letters the Apostle Paul wrote. Paul wrote 13 letters that we have in our Bible. We know he wrote more than that because he references other letters, but we have 13 in what we call the canon of Scripture. They're arranged by length, not by chronology. His earliest letter is probably Galatians, but they're arranged by length. So Romans, the longest, Philemon being the shortest. If you ever wondered how they are arranged in the Bible, they're not chronological, it's not topical, it is by length. We are in a, about a four-month series in this letter. This weekend we come to a very sobering section in which the Apostle Paul is reminding every true born-again Christian. I know not everyone here is a born-again Christian, but if you are, there's a lot of us here, he is reminding every true born-again Christian that one day before we enter the new earth, there will be an evaluation, a, a judgment of believers' works. Now, this is a surprise to some, not to others, but the Evaluation will be in regards, and we'll get into this, to what we did after salvation, our works and our obedience to Christ. The context is important. The context of 1 Corinthians is the local church. We saw that in the opening message, that everything Paul's doing here is through the lens of the local church. The local church is the body of Christ. Paul's very jealous about the local church. It's not just another organization in the culture. It is the primary way God works in a lost world. And Paul is especially teaching a future evaluation of believers in light of the Christian's role, or lack of, in their local church and through the building up of the ministry of the church. Not just in the, for, you know, the walls of the building, but as an organization, as local churches, what our role is in contributing to gospel health for local congregations or not. Meaning this, every true Christian, those who are truly saved, have already been forgiven of their sins. We're going to see that. We're going to be reminded of that. Every true Christian had their sins fully paid on the cross. Jesus died for the sins of his elect, his people. We will never face condemnation if we know Christ. We will never face judgment of that kind. We will be on the new heaven and the new earth. But God will still judge the works of believers after conversion. You may say, well, judge is a little bit of a strong word. Well, it's the word Scripture uses. There will be an evaluation, however you want to call it, an assessment, a judgment of believers' works after conversion. What is it they did? How did we treat the local church? How did we get involved in our local church? How did we advance, help advance the mission of the local church? And personally, issues of obedience. We'll look at some of those also that we will be evaluated on. This is a sobering section, challenging every true believer to take inventory it was a sobering sermon to work on uh, this last week and to really keep thinking, wow, I mean, I will stand before Christ someday, not to be determined heaven or hell, but I will stand before him as a believer and my works will be assessed. Did I advance his kingdom? Did I help advance his church? Did I help the gospel health of my church? Did I help believers in my church and personally what areas in my life in obedience did I do well at or not do well and there will be reward or lack of reward 
And so the question here is, how am I living the Christian life? Am I gaining reward or losing it? We see two things. Our text this morning begins in verse 10. This is where we're at. Chapter 3, verse 10 through verse 23. And we'll see two things in this section. The judgment of believers works. That's the longest thing we'll see. And then secondly, the call to humility, which is an ongoing theme throughout this letter. So first of all, let us dive in the longest section we're going to look at, the judgment of believers' works. Now, first of all, it's important to understand what this section is not talking about because, and I'm not here to to bash any groups, but this passage and one we'll look at shortly in 2 Corinthians 5 are the two main texts in the Protestant scriptures that the Catholic Church goes to to support the doctrine of purgatory. And what I want to show this morning is purgatory is a man-made doctrine, and secondly, these chapters have nothing to do with purgatory. Some of us know a little bit about purgatory. Some of us grew up that way. What is it, what it is not? Purgatory is a doctrine, because these chapters talk about fire cleansing. So purgatory is a doctrine that fire will be used to cleanse the elect in the intermediate state before they're admitted to heaven. Let me put... A, this is actually verbatim, right out of the Catholic Catechism. The church gives the name purgatory in its final purific- to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The Catholic Church formulated her doctrine of faith in purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. So you're talking about uh, roughly 15th, 16th century, those two councils. As for lesser fault, as for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. We understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but certain others in the age to come. That is the Catholic doctrine. The problem is the Bible doesn't teach purgatory in any way, shape, or form. It's a man-made doctrine. It undermines, here's what's the problem, it undermines the atonement of Christ. It undermines the fact that Jesus fully paid for the sins of his people. When he cried out, it is finished, he meant the sins of my people have been completely satisfied, paid for, and punished through his sacrifice on the cross. So, if 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and following, and if 2 Corinthians 5 are not talking about purgatory, and they're not, the question is, what are they talking about? And the answer is this, they're talking about the judgment of true believers' works one day after death. Now, before we unpack that, it's important to understand, again, the context Paul's coming from. He's been, he spent about 18 months in Corinth. He helped start this church. This is his baby. And as such, he has a lot invested in it. He has prayed, he has labored, he has trained leaders. Frankly, hasn't gone real well. We know from Clement writing about 40 years later, Bishop of Rome, it still wasn't going very well in his letter. But Paul is laser-focused. He started this church on a solid foundation, and he's concerned that it keep going forward. The foundation he founded it on, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 18, he is cross-eyed and cross-eyed focused. He is laser-beamed on the cross. And he is jealous that that foundation be built on well as he moves on. Verse 18, chapter 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
And then verse, chapter 2, verse 2, I think I shared a couple weeks ago, Becky and I actually have this on a large placard over our, our uh, front room door in our house. For I resolved to know nothing, chapter 2, verse 2, while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul is relentlessly focused on the... Now, after Paul left Corinth, let's be honest, every pastor one day leaves, every leader leaves someday. Every leader, every pastor, every ministry leader, lay leader, you're going to, we'll move on. Others come in our place. Our church, by God's grace, is coming on 128 years and it's been gospel faithful and everybody is building on previous generations. Paul understood that. It brings Paul to his immediate context here. He wants, he's jealous that whoever comes after him, Apollos in this case, and the whole church body, because he talks about every one of you, will build well on the foundations that he has laid. And so if you look at verse 10, he says, by the grace of God given, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, someone else is going to build on it. Apollos became the point person, but all of them are involved, all, every true believer there. But each one, he, he, this is the whole church, it's talking to the whole church here, should build with care. So Paul is talking not only to the leaders, he's talking to the whole church here. But the context is, first and foremost, our involvement with the health and gospel advancement of our church. But then we're going to see the New Testament also talks about other areas that Christians will be evaluated on. And that brings Paul then to the bulk of this section, starting in verse 11, about the judgment of believers' works. In other words, there will be a time, someday, If you know Christ, that you will stand, I will stand before him, and we will be evaluated based not on, and the issue is not heaven or hell. That's already decided at salvation. It's very important to understand that. The issue will be faithfulness, gospel faithfulness to his church and to areas of obedience in my life after conversion and then reward or lack of. Now, let let me be clear about the other judgment. Scholars disagree how many judgments there's going to be someday. I've read everything from two to ten. And so I'm not here to settle the question how many future judgments, but let's zero in on at least there's two that are very prominent in the New Testament. One is the final judgment, sheep and goats. That's not what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 3. I do want to take you to that one for a second. Go back to Matthew, the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, you have probably the most famous extended passage on the final judgment. The other extended section would be in the book of Revelation. But this comes right from Jesus' own teaching. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 34, this is the final judgment of the nations. So when all the dust settles someday, There's only two groups of humanity. That's it. The saved and the damned. The saved and the unsaved. The redeemed and the unredeemed. The elect and the non-elect. That's that's the only two really big groups. That's what this is talking about. The judgment of believers' works is not that. This is a separate judgment. This is the final judgment here. But it's just good to, to understand the difference. Matthew 25, verses 31 and following. When the Son of Man comes, that's Jesus' 
third-person description of himself. He got that from Daniel. It's his favorite title for himself. He applied to himself. Son of Man was a heavenly Messiah figure coming to, to judge the world. That's why, by the way, Jesus can't be just a good man. Anybody that says, oh, he was just a good moral teacher is not being honest with the evidence because he went around and he made extreme claims and one of them was this. He applied that title from Daniel to himself regularly, which means he's either telling the truth or he's not. We believe he was. When the Son of Man comes, so when I, he's saying, when I come someday in my glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Now in Israel, if you drive around Israel or even other places that have flocks and shepherds, you, you, will know, you don't always see it right at first, but sheep and goats are often herded together. There's usually more sheep than goats, but if you look closely, you'll see goats interspersed among the sheep. He will put the sheep, meaning those who are saved, on his right and the goats on the left. The king will say to those on his right, meaning the saved, the redeemed, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom, prepared for you since the creation of the world. That's the joyful thing. God has been preparing kingdom for his people, his elect, since the beginning of the world. Down in verse 41, you have the opposite. Then he will say to those on the left, these are the goats, the unsaved, depart from me. You are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So in other words, in this, in this section, Jesus is telling us the final judgment. Sheep and goats, the sheep do not have to worry. If you are one of God's sheep, you know Christ, this is not a time you're going to have to worry about. What Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 3 is the judgment of believers' works. That's a separate event in eschatology. Our sins, if you know Jesus, are fully forgiven, completely redeemed. There is no need for purgatory. There's no need for a treasury of merit. There's no need for indulgences. In fact, the Catholic Church still does indulgences. I've shared before, Ben and I took a hike in Ireland and at the bottom of this mountain, Crow Patrick is a big sign that says, if you hike the mountain, do it a certain time of the year, get to the top, do a certain number of circumnavigations around the chapel, do a certain number of things, you will be guaranteed some indulgences. So it is still an ongoing thing. But the Bible says, if you are one of God's people and the redeemed, your sins are fully covered. There's no need for a purgatory or anything else. You're saved. Done. It is what? Finished. There's no way to make that a whole lot clearer. Now, having said that, Paul again, verses 11 and following, now begins to talk about, well, there will be a judgment, though, for believers' works. The question is, what will they be judged for? The answer he gives, starting in verse 11, is how they live their life after salvation. Again, did they advance Christ's church? Did they advance his gospel? How were they in issues of personal obedience? So starting in verse 11, for no one can lay any other foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's Paul. He laid the foundation of Christ and his cross. This church is only about four or five years old at this point that he's writing. Verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day, 
The day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. So temple being metaphor for his body, his church. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple, that church. Now there are two other main passages that talk about the judgment seat of Christ. I want to turn to both of them because they're significant. One is in Romans 14 and one is in his second letter to Corinthians chapter 5. So we're going to go to both of those. First Romans 14 verses 10 through 12. These are the other two main texts, so it's good to look at them. Compare Scripture with Scripture, as Luther would say. Romans 14, 10 to 12. Same author, Paul. So we would expect same message, consistency here. This is Scripture. We would expect all Scripture to be consistent. But even, especially Paul, we would expect his language to even be consistent, and we find it such. Chapter 14, Romans, verses 10 to 12. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? We will all stand before God's judgment seat. Well, we all, we, Paul uses we language, he's talking about those who are saved. We will all stand before God's judgment seat. So he's saying there is a judgment seat coming for the true believers. As it is written, surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Each one of us, meaning true Christians, will account to God. The other main text, probably the main text, is 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to Corinthians Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Second Corinthians, chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. This is probably the most famous of the passages talking about this judgment of believers' works. Verse 9, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Again, the we being true Christians. So that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, you see the phrase translated in English, the judgment seat. It's the same that he used in Romans. The Greek word, there's only one word there used, is the word B-E-M-A. Bema. Let me show you a picture of what a bema looks like. Uh, I don't know of a lot of them left in existence, but there is one in Corinth. So, interestingly, last time I was there, our tour guide didn't even point it out. 
I happened to see it off to the side, so I wandered over and took some pictures of it. A bema, closest thing in our culture that I can think of, if you've seen the Olympics, after the Olympics are done, you have those kind of staggered bleachers or blocks that the Olympians that are getting rewards stand on. That's the closest thing really in our culture to a bema, although the bema was also used for judicial proclamations, but it was a place of reward and or judicial things. So this is Bima in Corinth. Let me show you two other photos just from different directions. I don't even know if you can see there's a little sign there in English and Greek, Bema, B-E-M-A. And then this one. Uh, now, this, you're you know, wondering how high is that thing? It's probably about the height of my head so far, but it, had, it went up higher, obviously. Built out of marble blocks. So this is a, this is a prominent structure in, in a city where prominent public events are occurring, specifically rewarding of athletes, rewarding for other things, judicial proclamations. Interesting, in Matthew 27, when Pilate pronounced judgment, it says right in the text it was at the Bema. So Jerusalem had a Bema there. Uh, or Herod, Acts 12, says he, ju- he, he, he spoke or made his judgment from the Bema. In Festus in Acts 25, uh, at the Bema in Corinth there, the Jews unsuccessfully accused Paul before the officials. You can find that in Acts 18. So public events of reward or judicial assessment or proclamation were made at this big public platform, just called a Bema. That's the word Paul uses of this judgment someday, the Bema of Christ. That's what he means. He's talking about some, there's going to be some way in which this is a public event to some degree each believer we don't know exactly the question is what will take place for true Christians at the Bema and, and again the issue is not heaven and hell it's just it's important to say it that was decided at salvation for every true Christian the Bible teaches over and over if you know Christ your sins are paid for uh, two of my favorite verses Galatians 3:13. I mean, if you know Jesus, let these just fill you with hope. Christ redeemed us, us as his elect, his his people, from the curse of the law. If you know Jesus, you're not under the curse of the law. He became a curse for us. A whole sermon you could preach on that. Another one of my favorites, Hebrews 10, 12 he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. That's why he cried out on the cross, it is finished. I paid the penalty for my people. It's done. There's nothing else they have to do. Again, now having said that, Christians are going to be evaluated. That's why Paul, go back to 1 Corinthians 3, he says each one of us, meaning He's not only talking to Apollos, he's not only talking to the leaders, he is talking to the leaders of this church, he's talking to every every believer. So this is an individual, in other words, not a collective judgment, it's an individual judgment, and the purpose is not judicial, but reward. Not judicial, but reward. That's the key. And the question is, well, reward for what? Well, how we lived our lives, we'll get that in a minute. The nature of this reward is not made super clear in the Bible. The closest I can find to something that would hint at it is in Luke 19, the parable of the ten minas, 
where Christ gives out a certain number of resources to different individuals and then circles back to see what they did with them and then rewards them in the next life, it looks like, with different levels of reward and responsibility. That's the best guess I can see in the Bible. Having said that, there's no indication in the Bible that on the new earth, believers will have any kind of ongoing sorrow. So, uh, not sure. How, the Bible doesn't always fit everything perfectly together. It makes proclamations, it makes declarations. You don't have to understand everything you affirm. People come to me and say, I don't understand this or I don't understand that. And I'm like, well, join the club. I don't understand the Trinity. I don't understand predestination. But you don't have to completely understand a doctrine to affirm it. You can say, okay, I see the doctrine. God is mysterious. He's obviously a lot wiser and bigger and his thoughts are not my thoughts. So even if I don't understand the complexities of doctrine A, B, or C, I can affirm them because they're right there. It says so. I don't understand how Christ's atonement covers sin or whatever. You can still affirm a doctrine you don't understand. So I don't understand how there can be a judgment of believers' works and people have gain and loss and yet there's no ongoing sorrow in eternity. But that seems to be clearly the teaching. Now the question comes up, what kinds of things will believers be evaluated on besides their involvement in advancing the mission of the local church and being involved in their church as he's talking about here and the Bible gives us a number of key areas I chose several I went over these carefully this week and I picked I thought a group of the, the of the clearest where it's very clear there is reward for believers or lack of based on these areas so let me just put these up here's some I would encourage you to look up these verses and, and even do further study Matthew 5 11 to 12 how well we suffered for Christ it's clear there will be reward for those who suffered well. Not every true believer suffers well for Jesus. Some do. Some, on the other hand, go the other direction. There's self-pity, there's blame, there's bitterness, there's murmuring. It's, if you're suffering, number one, it's through the direct providence of a loving God who does nothing except through His love for His people. And if so... Are you suffering well? There will be reward for those who do. Matthew 10, 42, how well we treated the poor, the needy, the least of these. It's very clear. I'm going to be assessed on that. That's sobering. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, how much intensity you ran the Christian life with. Was it a pastime? Or were you all in with everything? That's going to be evaluated someday by Christ at the Bema, with you and him. First Timothy 6, 17-19, how we handled our money. Jesus talked a lot, <laughs> that's an understatement, about money. A lot. There's a huge emphasis how we use our money in the Bible. And there's going to be reward based on how we used our money, our faithfulness with it, how we spent it, how we saved it, how we gave it, sacrificial giving or tithing, all of that. It's very clear. There's a massive, in fact, there's an argument made. Jesus talked about money almost more than anything else. Talked about it more than heaven and hell. Hebrews 6.10, how we treated other believers. Very important. Hebrews 13.17, how we responded to leadership in our local church. 
or James 1.12, how we handled trials. So those are, it's not, a, it's not a complete list. I did not intend it to be an exhaustive list, but I, as I went over each of those passages several times, those are some of the clearest, I believe, when it comes to rewards or lack of for believers. So that would be a good study to do with your kids. It'd be a good study to do with yourself and even to expand it from there. All right, second thing in this passage, and lastly, is after the judgment of believers works, there's a call to humility. This is an ongoing theme in Corinthians because Paul is very concerned about human wisdom and godly wisdom. Pride versus humility. Next week, chapter 4, just a heads up, it is a bulldozer. (laughs) It's just a bulldozer. Becky read it this week and she's like, that chapter 4 is like, wow, it's just in your face about pride. Paul is very concerned that the Corinthians, who were obsessed with human wisdom, to say the least, these are Greeks, Greek culture is very advanced, they have their heroes, their philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Zeno, Socrates, the list could go on and on. They revered you know, kind of like our culture is obsessed with athletic heroes, they were obsessed with intellectual heroes. And Paul hammers on humility and pride and wisdom and godly wisdom versus false wisdom. And this is a natural segue for Paul here to remind true Christians of the need for humility and true wisdom. Look at verses 18 through 20. And again, this is just a, this is an ongoing repetitive theme in his letter. Don't deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise which most of them thought that they were pretty wise, by the standards of this age, you should become fools, meaning fools in the eyes of the world, so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. It has some interesting insights occasionally, some interesting tidbits, but as a whole, because it separates itself from divine revelation, it ends up in the ditch and going over the cliff. That's what he's talking about. The the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, this is a quote from Job. Paul knew about Job. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise in their futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. And he goes on to rebuke them. The ironic thing is, when you look at the wisdom of the world, which is paraded in front of us every day, all day long. We are swamped with it. And it's getting, as the moral revolution unfolds, it's getting more and more intense, and it will continue to pick up steam unless God intervenes. But the ironic thing about the wisdom of the world, and even the whole LGBTQ revolution, and the moral revolution, and all the other parts of this huge cultural revolution about the self, is that it promises and delivers opposite things. Wisdom of the world, which has been picking up steam and changing about every year and a half now, down to about every year, about every month now it's changing, promises freedom and happiness and liberation. And all you have to do is look at history to know that's a lie. That's a lie. I know of no better resource than Paul Johnson's book, Intellectuals. 
Some of you have heard of the book. I have recommended it on occasion. I would highly, it's a very interesting book to begin with. I would highly encourage you to consider getting it, either in print or in audible. Paul Johnson's a British historian who made his specialty to study the lives of those who claim to be the moral guides of humanity. This is how he opens the book. This book is an examination of the moral credentials of certain leading intellectuals who have attempted to give advice to humanity on how to conduct its affairs. Well, that's a fair thesis. And then he offers something like about 12 or so biographical chapters on leading secular intellectuals over the last 300 years. A captivating book. Especially if you're here and you're, you're in high school, college age. This is a, this is a pivotal book. He offers these short biographical chapters on those who claim to be the, the wise guys of, of, of history. They said, we are qualified to be the moral guides for all humanity. And ironically, what he shows is each of these individuals didn't just fail. They were galactic train wrecks in their own lives. They shipwrecked their lives and they damaged, destroyed, and deeply wounded those closest to them. Almost without fail. He dives into chapters on Karl Marx, who personally was a moral train wreck. Or Rousseau, who was a sexual degenerate, putting it mildly. Or Tolstoy, who was a sexual monster and predator. Hemingway, Bertrand Russell, Jean-Paul Sartre, Percy Shelley, his second wife Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. And he just shows, he takes you through each of these lives and showing you, these are the ones who said, I am wise. Listen, declared themselves to be moral guides for humanity. And yet you look at their lives, person after person after person, they were train wrecks. And he says, something's wrong. And what's wrong is that they were following the wisdom of the world and lying to the world, saying this is the way to live. And yet when they lived that way, it was a disaster. And so Paul is saying, make sure you're listening to true wisdom. Young people, you build on the wrong thing, you're going to hit the wall and you're going to go over the cliff. And, the, and, 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 and it will echo on for decades. The pain sometimes, the consequences. I'm not here to be a prophet of gloom and doom, but let's be honest. You make certain choices and they can have consequences that last a lifetime. One of my prayers, ever since I was a young man, that I have prayed pretty regularly is, is something like this. I still do. Oh God, I know I'm going to sin and make a lot of mistakes. And I have. But God, please protect me from those life-altering mistakes that would destroy my life and ministry. That's the kind of thing we need to go back to the scriptures. And, and that's why you need to be in your Bible all the time. That's why we need to be under the preaching of the word. And that's why we need to be in community. That's why we need to get together regularly with believers separate from Sunday mornings. And be with people who have the same values and are in the book and listening to God. Because the wisdom of the world is always beating and clamoring for our attention. And it's amazing how much we can just drift that way without even realizing it. We've got to come back to our source. That's why Paul is so passionate about this. 
All right, let's land this airplane. Summons. What is this? There's lots of summons here, but let me, let me zero in on two and then we'll close. Here's our summons. Number one. Obviously, summons number one. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Do you know Christ? Have you been truly born again? And is there evidence of it in your life? What do you say? Evidence like what? New desires, new behaviors, not perfection, but conviction of sin and over time a different trajectory. People who may not have seen you for 10 years see you 10 years later and like, there's something different about you. You have light in your eyes. You have hope. Even though things are difficult, you seem to have a joy. Those are signs of conversion. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. That's how you get in the kingdom of God. That's how you know God. What's that mean? Repent is to hate your sin, turn around, go the other way. And to believe is to surrender to Jesus as Lord. It's being all in. It's not just believing facts. You have to believe facts cognitively. There are facts you have to affirm. There was a Jesus and he was the son of God and he died on a cross and he rose from the dead. You can't get saved by bypassing those things or being uh, squishy on them. He's the only Savior. But just affirming those doesn't make somebody a Christian. You have to be all in. There has to be an all-out surrender to Christ as Lord. That's when we become one with Him and are in union with Him and His Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. So as Billy Graham, if you know who he was, used to end his crusades holding his Bible and pointing his finger out, do you know Christ? There's no greater question. Do you know Christ? Young people, do you know Christ? Have you been born again? Most important issue on the planet. If not, when you get to that judgment that Matthew talked about someday, you will be on the side of the goats. And Jesus spared no language about the horrors that await those who don't know Christ. Second question for those who are saved here this morning, know Christ. How are you living in light of future evaluation? In regards to your involvement and advancement of your own church? I mean, Paul, again, Paul's context in Corinthians is the local church. He's talking about the leaders and how they're building and all of that. So the first context is, how am I, am I advancing my church? Am I involved in my church? Am I part of this congregation? Am I serving or am I just showing up and leaving? That's not New Testament Christianity. Do I come when it's only convenient? That's not New Testament Christianity. This needs to be priority number one. It takes priority over extracurriculars, over everything else. Sabbath is a day set aside for God's people to recalibrate, connect, worship, and rest. And then beyond that, as we saw, there's a number of other issues we will be assessed on. Issues of obedience. First command given to anybody who knows Christ is to go underwater and be baptized. To not do that is disobedience because that's public identification with Christ. But then, obviously, how we used our money, our sex lives, our treatment of the Lord's day, our attitudes, how we treated the poor, the list goes on and on. Jesus says, if you love me, John 14, 15, you will keep my commandments. There will be a pattern there. The Corinthians had gotten sloppy. That's a mild statement about all things church, about obedience, about the church, about church discipline, about holiness in our own lives, about worship. And we live in a culture that's very similar. Too many who profess to know Christ treat the church 
as an add-on. And it's very easy to get in the habit of just treating it as an add-on, even staying home just out of convenience and habit and disobeying Christ's command to get together, disobeying Hebrews' command to be together. It's very easy to get out of these habits if we're not diligent in staying in the book over the years. Bottom line, Bible says the church is a big deal. Jesus says the church is a big deal, and it needs to be a big deal to us. And one day, may this motivate us that there will be a time of reward or loss based on how we lived, if you know Christ, as we go into the new earth. Again, this is sobering. This is uh, this is a bit of a jolt as I worked on this this week, but I need this correction. I need this in my own life. And I trust that we all do. It's never, it, it, Paul gives no hint that this is designed to put some kind of ungodly fear in us, but the fear of God in us to live righteous and holy lives that shine Christ. That's, that's his motivation behind all of this. Father, thank you for Paul. He doesn't always write comfortable stuff, but... He writes important things. And we pray today that this would encourage us. For those who don't know Christ, oh God, draw them to the joy in Jesus. And for those of us who know him, may this sober us about what we will be assessed on someday. And Father, all of us need fine-tuning. May this challenge us to shore up some areas in our life that need it. For your glory. In your church, in Christ's name, amen.